Hello and welcome to the HRO2 December issue. This is Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief. This issue starts off with a wonderful commentary by Dr. Jennifer Silva entitled, Children Really Are Not Little Adults. What we can take away from the 2021 PACES expert consensus statement on the indications and management of cardiovascular implantable electronic devices. This was published in the Heart Rhythm Journal in its November issue. The next article is by Dr. Mark Wilcox and colleagues and is titled Continuous ECG Monitoring versus Mobile Telemetry, a Comparison of Arrhythmia Diagnostics in Human versus Algorithmic Dependent Systems. This is a very interesting paper that was presented as a late-breaking clinical trial at this year's Heart Rhythm Society Scientific Sessions. In this paper, the authors compare the manufacturer's detection of arrhythmias from a mobile cardiac telemetry device using an algorithm-based assessment to a continuous long-term ECG monitor using human overread for detection. 50 sequential patients were enrolled. The goal was to have the patients wear both devices simultaneous for a full 14 days. The reports from both devices were then overread by two electrophysiologists. The results showed that in the 46 patients who were able to wear both monitors and wore them for an average of 10 days, the authors found that arrhythmias were more often identified with the human overread of the long-term ECG device than the mobile cardiac telemetry device using the algorithm-based detection. That was 23 arrhythmias detected versus only 11, and that was a significant finding. Also, the total number of arrhythmia episodes was higher in the long-term ECG group with the overreading by humans, which was 61 versus 19 episodes, and this was regardless of arrhythmia type. Regarding atrial fibrillation, both reading strategies documented atrial fibrillation in two patients, although the long-term ECG and human overread strategy picked up more episodes of AFib. This study is a cautionary tale regarding reliance upon only an algorithm assessment of ambulatory ECG monitoring. The next paper is by Dr. Andres Balcazar, who has authored a paper titled Safety and Efficacy Aspects of Pulsed Field Ablation Catheters as a Function of Electrode Proximity to Blood and Energy Delivery Method. This study explores three catheter designs for efficacy and safety. The variables to study included geometry, blood exposure, and energy-delivered methods amongst three catheter designs to compare the lesion transmurality, the extra atrial safety, and the embolic risk. The study was performed using a CT-derived computer model. Balloon, flexible circuits, splined, and circular catheters were placed near the left pulmonary veins. Then four different energy delivery methods were tested, which included multi-unipolar, sequential unipolar, interlaced, and wide interlaced. The posterior wall was targeted and efficacy was defined as a percent target with greater than 600 volts per centimeter. Safety endpoints included aortic esophageal electroporation and a bubble generation surrogate electrocurrent density with 90% transmurality requirement. The authors found that balloon catheters had the highest efficacy followed by flexible polymer splined and circular catheters. Regarding energy delivery methods, the multi-unipolar delivery was the most efficacious, followed by interlaced bipolar and sequential unipolar deliveries. Electroporation risks to the aorta and the esophagus were the highest with the multi-unipolar energy delivery, whereas the bubble risk was the lowest with balloon catheters. The authors conclude that using computer modeling, the authors could show that catheters with electrodes on a balloon surface or on flexible circuit splines were four times more efficacious than circular catheters with electrodes exposed to atrial blood. Second, the authors suggest that multi-unipolar energy delivery methods have a higher risk of electroporating aortic and esophageal tissue 
when compared to bipolar interlaced methods. Third, regarding embolic risk, the circular catheters have the highest bubble generating potential. And finally, that a balloon or flexible circuit spline system with a wide interlaced delivery method showed the best balance between efficacy and safety. The next paper is authored by Dr. Ayub and colleagues. It's called Esophageal Temperature During Atrial Fibrillation Ablation Poorly Predicts Esophageal Injury in Observational Study. The purpose of this study was to examine high-power, short-duration PDI ablation in order to assess esophageal injury in 43 patients. High-power, short-duration was delivered at 50 watts for 6 to 7 seconds. Esophageal temperature monitoring was performed in all patients with an EGD performed the following day. Positive findings included small ulcers, non-bleeding erosions, erythema, and or esophagitis, all of which were considered positive EGD findings. The authors found that 11 of the patients had a positive EGD and 32 patients had a normal EGD. These became group 1 and group 2. The authors found that there was not a statistical difference in the mean esophageal peak temperature between group 1 and group 2, which was 42.5 degrees centigrade and 43.9 degrees centigrade, respectively. And there was no association between positive EGD results and esophageal temperature during PBI. Other factors were looked at for possible correlation with the endoscopy results. The mean baseline esophageal temperature was not different, nor was the average contact force ablation time, age, sex, or other measured comorbidities. There was, however, a positive correlation between the distance of the left atrium to esophagus and having positive EGD findings. This was a significant finding with a significant p-value. The authors conclude that esophageal injury during high-powered short-duration PVI ablation does not correlate to esophageal temperature changes during ablation. But esophageal injury does correlate to a shorter proximity of the esophagus to the left atrium. The next paper by Dr. Smithana and colleagues is titled Feasibility of Natural Surface Epicardial Mapping from the Pulmonary Artery for Management of Atrial Arrhythmias. The background, as the authors note, for this study is that the right and left pulmonary artery branches overlie areas of the left atrial epicardium that is not accessible. This region includes the Bachmann bundle, which can participate in arrhythmia pathogenesis. The investigators hypothesize that this situation provides an opportunity for use of natural surface epicardial mapping. They test this hypothesis in two swine and 11 patients who were undergoing atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter mapping. For the swine, mapping, pacing, and ablation was completed. Evaluation of the tissue specimens did not show any vascular disruption and left atrial epicardial lesions resulted in up to 7 millimeters in diameter and 3 millimeters in depth. For the 11 patients, natural surface epicardial mapping was recorded successfully, with pacing from the RPA in all and from the LPA in six of the patients. LPA mapping was successful. The authors identified simultaneous leftward activation of Bachmann's muddle, followed by rightward activation of the opposing left atrial endocardium with Krista pacing. Right and left PA median signal amplitudes were 0.71 millivolts and 0.30 millivolts, respectively. Endocardial left atrial median distance was 9 millimeters to the RPA and 15.6 millimeters to the LPA, and left atrial capture was successful in 88%, or 7 out of 8. They also note that in cases of atypical flutter, entrainment was successful in 3 of 3. To summarize, the authors note the following key findings. Surface area epicardial mapping from the right and left main pulmonary artery is a means for electrogram recording of the Bachmann bundle and epicardial roof muscle fibers. 
Epicardial signals from the pulmonary artery can be safely recorded, and in select cases of atypical flutter, the arrhythmia can be successfully entrained from this location. Pulmonary artery recordings provide arrhythmia characteristics that may not be otherwise visible on the left atrial endocardial surface and may guide anatomic endocardial ablation. Anatomic variability exists in distance from the pulmonary artery to the epicardial left atrium and myocardial capture threshold may be a surrogate for proximity and index of direct continuity. The safety and efficacy of an adjunctive strategy of ablation from the pulmonary artery requires further study. The next paper is called Intracardiac Conduction Time as a Predictor of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Response, Results of the Bioselect Pilot Study by Dr. Sojima and colleagues. In this study, the authors compare various measures of electrical delay to correlate to measures of CRT response in 196 patients, 57% of whom had a left bundle branch block. Patients were all, all implanted with a CRT using a quadrupolar lead. The measurements included RV sense to LV sense, RV pace to LV sense, and LV pace to LV sense between the distal LV1 and then the proximal pole on the quadrupolar LV lead. The conduction delays were measured before hospital discharge, echocardiograms, and clinical data obtained at baseline and seven months of follow-up. The authors found that measures of intrinsic conduction showed a positive correlation with the outcome measures, whereas using RV or LV paced times did not. The next paper is titled, Assessing Long-Term Survival and Hospitalization Following Transvenous Lead Extraction in Patients with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Devices, a propensity score matched analysis by Drs. Mehta and colleagues. These authors set out to see if patients undergoing lead extraction with a CRT device fared more or less well than those having an extraction who did not have a CRT. Out of 1,005 patients who underwent lead extraction over a period of nine years, 285 patients had a CRT. When compared to those without a CRT, CRT patients with transvenous lead extraction were more likely to die and be hospitalized for any cause. Their propensity analysis included 192 CRT and 192 non-CRT patients. The results of this analysis showed no difference in mortality hazard ratio of 1.01 or hospitalization risk hazard ratio of 1.2. They also observed that in the CRT group, late reimplantation was associated with increased mortality, hazard ratio of 1.64, and hospitalization risk. In contrast, late implantation in non-CRT patients was not associated with similarly poor outcomes. Therefore, the authors conclude that the outcomes of CRT patients following lead extraction are similarly as poor as those of non-CRT patients in propensity-matched populations. While reimplantation within seven days was associated with better outcomes in a CRT population, that was not observed in the non-CRT patients, which possibly suggests that prolonged periods without biventricular pacing should be avoided in patients who undergo a lead extraction for CRT. The next paper by Dr. Lee and colleagues is titled Late Onset Atrial Ventricular Block After Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement. The purpose of their study is to examine the clinical characteristics of patients with late presentation of heart block post-TAVR, defined as equal to or greater than one month after TAVR. The study included 246 patients, of whom 43 had periprocedural AV block. A permanent pacemaker occurred within one month in 0.5% of the patients. The clinical characteristics were similar between those who had AV block versus those who did not, except for a lower GFR in the patients with periprocedural AV block. Late onset AV block occurred in 10 of the 230 patients who did not get a permanent pacer in that first month. 
Median time of occurrence for the AV block was 76 days. All 10 of these patients had shown some transient conduction abnormalities. Nine of the 10 had self-expanding valves. The mortality rate in patients with a permanent pacemaker implantation within one month was higher than in those without, although the difference was not statistically significant. The authors conclude that late-onset AV block occurred in a minority of patients undergoing TAVR. Greater vigilance is warranted, particularly in the patients with transient conduction disturbances during the periprocedural period following self-expanding valve implantation. Dr. Takur and colleagues are the authors of the next article titled, Arrhythmias in Patients with In-Hospital Alcohol Withdrawal are associated with increased mortality, insights from 1.5 million hospitalizations for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. The authors used the nationwide inpatient sample database between 2015 and 2018 to identify patient hospitalizations for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Patient characteristics, outcomes, and hospitalization costs were compared amongst patients who did or did not have arrhythmias during withdrawal. Propensity score matching was then performed, and multivariate regression were performed to control for confounders and develop odds ratios, respectively. A total of 1,511,155 alcohol withdrawal hospitalizations were identified, and 9.72% of these had arrhythmias during the withdrawal time. After propensity score matching, each group included 135,540 patients. The authors found that those with concurrent arrhythmias had a higher in-hospital mortality rate, 4.19% versus 1.95%. The majority of the arrhythmias observed were atrial fibrillation, occurring in 66.7%. The patients with arrhythmias had worse in-hospital outcomes, higher risk of acute heart failure, AKI, and acute respiratory failure. In addition, length of stay and hospital costs were higher in those with arrhythmias. The authors note the following key findings, that atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia associated with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome, complicated by arrhythmias, is associated with higher all-cause in-hospital mortality. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome, complicated by arrhythmia, leads to poor in-hospital outcomes, extended hospital stays, and higher costs. The next article by Drs. Gia and colleagues is titled, Left Atrial Shape, is an independent predictor of arrhythmia recurrence after catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation, a shape statistics study. This is an interesting paper. The authors perform pre-ablation CT segmentation and use a statistic shape modeling framework to see if LA shape, independent from LA volume or AF persistence, is predictive of post-ablation AF recurrence in 141 patients. They develop a shape score, which uses the average shape parameters to then compare the shape analysis in each patient to the average. 23% of the patients had AF recurrence over one year of follow-up. In a multivariate analysis, the LA shape was found to be an independent predictor, as were left atrial volume and persistence of atrial fibrillation for the outcome measure of AF recurrence. The authors provide a suggested algorithm using the combination of these three factors to predict the likelihood of AF recurrence post-ablation. Dr. Friedman and colleagues have the following paper, Continuous and Discontinuous Radiofrequency Energy Deliver on the Atrial Free Wall, Lesion Transmorality, Width, and Biophysical Characteristics. The purpose of this study was to compare interrupted or continuous RF delivery on the lesion formed in the atrial free wall using a swine model. Six swine were included and ablation lesions were applied. The three sets of lesions included 15 seconds of ablation. This included eight separate ablation lesions. The second 
was 32nd ablations, which included 14 ablation lesions, and the third was 15 seconds of ablations times two at the same site but separated by two minutes, and this was done in 11 ablation lesions. Transmorality was then examined for the lesions. 30 of the 33 were transmural. Transmurality rates and endocardial lesion width were the same across the different ablation strategies. The mean thickness of the transmural lesions was 1.7 millimeter. While there was no difference by ablation strategy group in the bipolar attenuation, though it was greater in the 32nd or the 15 second times two groups, there was wide variability noted across and within each of the strategy groups. Also, impedance reductions were not statistically significant across the strategy groups, despite, again, wide variability. The authors conclude that a single 15-second ablation at 25 watts with a target contact force of 15G resulted in similar size lesions as the 30 seconds or the 15 seconds times 2 ablation strategy. As the authors did not vary the power, they posit that larger diameter lesions may require higher power for posterior atrial sites. The next paper by Dr. Hugh and colleagues is called Atrial Fibrillation Associated with Heart Failure Treatment by a Two-Lead CRT-DX System, or the Bile Affect DX, Study Design and Clinical Protocol. This manuscript is a design paper for a trial which will evaluate the Biotronic 2-lead CRT-DX system in heart failure patients with atrial fibrillation. This study is a prospective observational multicenter trial at 50 U.S. sites. The target number of enrollees is 400 patients. The primary outcome measure is the percent of patients who improve at 12 months post-CRT as measured by a clinical composite score. Follow-up data to be collected includes clinical data, atrial rhythm status, device interrogations at 3, 6, and 12 months post-implant. All heart failure, arrhythmia, and death events will be adjudicated by a CEC. The authors propose that this study will provide further insights into the outcomes of CRT in patients treated with heart failure who have atrial fibrillation. The next paper is a review paper called Preventing Esophageal Complications from Atrial Fibrillation Ablation. A review from the St. George's Hospital in London. This is by Dr. Leung and colleagues. It's an excellent review. After this, the next article is a brief report by Dr. Hooks and colleagues. It is titled, Arrhythmic Causes of In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Among Patients with Heart Failure and Preserved Ejection Fraction. This is a nice paper in which the authors sought to determine the incidence of VTVF detected in 286 hospital cardiac arrests including HEF-PEF and HEF-REF patients, and patients without a history of heart failure. The primary outcome variable was the initial arrhythmia detected during the in-hospital cardiac arrest. The authors found that VT or VF was the initial rhythm in nearly 50% of the in-hospital cardiac arrests in the HEF-PEF patients. This was similar to those with HEF-REF. The ROSC and 30-day survival was similar for both HEF-PEF and HEF-REF patients. The authors note if these findings are found in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, further studies could be designed to assess the benefit of ICD therapy in this patient group. Well, this ends the podcast summary of the December issue of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Thank you so much for listening today.